0: I'm Gregory Berg. As regular listeners to The Morning Show undoubtedly know, Nan Calvert has been a very special part of the program for quite some time, offering up an environmentally themed program on a monthly basis, and she's done so for the past 18 years. Her last visit to the morning show in that capacity occurred this past Thursday. She is stepping down. And in gratitude for all she has contributed to the program, we are replaying some of our favorite NAN interviews uh, on the Saturday and Sunday podcasts during the month of February. This particular interview about habitat restoration aired back in March of 2021. And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Greg Berg it is great to have back with us for her monthly visit to the program nan calvert from root pike win and uh, nan as you know if you are a frequent listener to the morning show always uh, uh, brings with her an interesting guest or two to talk about some kind of issue related to the environment and first of all nan we welcome you back to the program uh, oh,
1: thanks very much i'm glad to be here
0: today's conversation very much uh, falls in line with one of our most recent conversations. Uh, Talk for a moment first about the topic itself before we introduce our special guest.
1: Surely. So today we are going to talk about a really exciting project going on in Mount Pleasant. It's called the Meacham Road Project, most commonly anyway. Um, And this is about habitat restoration, habitat reintroduction, improvement. um, And it also falls under the umbrella of green infrastructure. Um, And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this project and the benefits that it provides, not only to people in that area, but to all of us in the Root Pike Watershed Basin.
0: Very good. And I'm especially excited about this because I live in Mount Pleasant and don't live very far at all from Meacham Road. So we're uh, for once we're talking about something that's uh, almost literally in my backyard. So this is going to be fun. <laughs> uh, I understand, Nan, you're meeting our, our special guest today, actually person to person for the first time today. Tell us though how you first came to know about Joe Pfeiffer. Uh, well,
1: um, so... Root Pike Watershed Initiative Network is familiar with KCI and certainly the project that's happening right now. Uh, And so I was happy to be able to um, contact KCI and find out who would be the best person to represent that firm as well as the project. And it turns out to be Joe.
0: Very good, who is a vice president with KCI Technology. Yes, he is. And we uh, are happy to have you with us on the morning show today. Uh, before we talk about KCI specifically, uh, maybe we can just find out a little bit about you, where you're from uh, originally, and and maybe a little bit about how you originally got interested in this kind of work.
2: Well, um, I'm from the East Coast originally, so I grew up in Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, and I you know, spent a lot of time uh, in that area, and, and basically just <laughs> the wonders of the Chesapeake Bay are, are pretty phenomenal. Um, and, you know, having some done that, I, I was, came, became very interested in the environment and what was going on. I, I kind of grew up in the heyday of the Chesapeake Bay restoration movement. Uh, so i had actually planned on uh, kind of getting into the, the wildlife field and, and went to college, you know, for that, that particular, uh, that genre. And then uh, the things happened to kind of strike correctly. And, you know, when they put the Clean Water Act in in the um, early uh, 80s and early, early 70s, early 80s, uh, it opened up a lot of opportunities for me at that point in time, and and I've just kind of grown with the with the whole movement from there.
0: Very good. Uh, tell us about when you uh, came aboard uh, KCI Technologies.
2: I started with KCI in 1988, so I've been uh, working with KCI for 32 years. Um, wow. This is my this is my third tour of duty, as I like to put it. So I spent my first 12 years in the Maryland office doing a lot of work with Chesapeake Bay restoration, stream restoration. Um, a lot of it was really the epicenter a lot of, of, of some very strong ecological um, restoration and movement work uh, in, in the country. Um, and then after that I transferred and I was in the southeast and I ran the southeast operations in the in ecological world. So I was working out of Raleigh, North Carolina, and did a lot of work uh, in there, North Carolina, everything south. And then uh, within the last seven years, I've actually transferred. for now. I'm in the Midwest region, and I'm basically heading up the operations in terms of developing our ecological restoration services here.
0: Wow. So take us inside that term ecological restoration. Uh, in general, what are we talking about? And then from there, we can uh, explore more specifically how that's playing out in Mount Pleasant. But let's begin mm-hmm. first with a more overarching understanding of what ecological restoration is and how okay. it's done.
2: Okay. And and that's, there, there's, you know, kind of a philosophical side of it and actually a practical side of it. So the reality of the ecological restoration is we're, we're trying to return or reestablish functions that were lost um, over time due to anything from human activity to natural occurrences. Um, the environment provides us all with a whole suite of, 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 viable functions from air clean air clean water to wildlife habitat and over time you know that just from human occupation those things become become damaged slowly over time in climate change so part of doing the ecological restoration is trying to figure out how to reclaim those functions now within that you know you have the concept of trying to restore it back to the condition it was historically in but you know more recently people are recognizing that most of our ecological systems are, are novel by nature because they've changed because of um, climate change or things that are around them. So we can't always restore them purely back to the original ecological condition that was preoccupation. But we can restore the majority of the functions just in a different context. So doing ecological restoration is, is partly understanding the, the functions that the area or, or the, that is providing or provided and trying to find ways of integrating them back in and kind of in a new paradigm to basically create a, a system that re reestablishes those functions for the betterment of society.
0: How long has this kind of thing been done? I mean, how, how far back into our history uh, can we see this kind of work being done?
2: I think there's always been a, a, a trend for basically doing ecological restoration. I think it started at, you know, with, uh, with the, kind of the ecology movement back in the 60s and going into the 70s, but until really, until the Clean Water Act came along where we, had, as, a, as a country, decided we didn't want rivers burning on fire and we wanted to basically make all rivers fishable and swimmable, that it really kind of gained traction. And, you know, with that, you know, the, the epicenter is really of the ecological restoration major movements for the Chesapeake Bay, San Francisco Bay and, and then the Everglades. Those were kind of the three areas that people really kind of stood up and took notice. And, and they were kind of the foundation by which everything has kind of spawned out of. And then because the, of the, the need to basically um, uh, kind of mitigate for impacts associated with air and water and all that, there becomes more funding opportunities to actually do this and more opportunities to, to match projects with needs um, and finding ways of, of actually putting them in the ground so
0: explain how a, a firm like like yours functions in terms of the kind of projects that you do and and how they sort of come to you how you come to take up the the, the projects that that you do uh, mm-hmm. how, how are these connections made
2: they they come from a lot of different avenues um some of them come from the just the purely restoration side as we call it in terms of there's a an NGO that basically has a project they want done and 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 we work with them to basically get that accomplished. Um, some of them are for compensating or mitigating for impacts. Um, you know, a lot of times a, a tremendous amount of our work comes through the departments of transportation whereby, you know, they're probably a major impactor because their highways are so long and wide that eventually they, they wind up with impacts and then they need to replace or mitigate those impacts um, to basically compensate. For the loss of the functions of the system. So some of it comes from that. And then otherwise, you know, we work with just different organizations who who basically are looking to basically improve the, the environment or, uh, around them um, and develop a more comprehensive approach, a sustainability type of process um, with development and those kind of things. So they kind of all come from different angles, but they're all with the intent of trying to restore the, those lost functions. So for
0: instance, at, at, at this point in time, uh, when we are talking, and of course, we're going to turn our attention in a little bit to the specific project in Mount Pleasant that you're working on. At, at any given point in time, how many projects is KCI working on? And I would guess that maybe if you're working on multiple projects simultaneously, that you're at probably different points along the, the, the chronological arc in terms of start and be middle and end.
2: Yep. So the the projects, the in the, the the more modern sense of these projects, which are larger projects, you know, they take ten years to get to completion. So, but from the time you actually start them to the time you go through design, permitting, planning, construction, monitoring, management, it takes ten years to restore a, a ecological system, um, you know, back to health. With that in mind, you know, currently we probably have. 25, 30 projects going company-wide. We have, we have two going here in Wisconsin. Um, we have many going back on the East Coast. We have a bunch of them down in Indiana um, in different levels and contacts. Some we're doing everything, some we're doing monitoring and management. It, it just depends on that. But, you know, overall, when when you look at what we've done, let's say, in the past, you know, 15 years, you know, within the project lifespan, we, we probably have about 400,000 linear feet of stream channel restoration work we've done and probably um, 700 to 1200 acres of wetland restoration that we've done. Um, And that's just the pure ecological restoration side of things. That doesn't include other things where we're integrating planning work into um, uh, lake restoration or into uh, nutrient control or management or those other types of things which are a bit more single function focused. Wow.
0: I I wasn't expecting... You to be talking about something quite so broad in terms of the scope of of what you 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 folks are able to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it it's all it's all encompassing. I a lot of times I I I try to relate um, kind of what we do as environmental scientists and ecological restoration specialists. It's it's similar to the medical field. Um, you know, the earths our patient, and we we spend a lot of times monitoring it and figuring out how to treat it, and then try to basically work with the symptoms to basically kind of bring it back to health. And so that, that, that covers a wide range of things and a, and a wide geography of, of area that to basically work in.
0: Wow. And then I suspect you uh, appreciate that metaphor that he just offered. And, and I, I suspect you would be uh, wanting us to think about preventative medicine or, uh, I mean, preventing <laughs> problems before they uh, emerge and have to be, in a sense, treated and repaired.
1: It would be lovely. Yes, that would be a, a terrific way to approach things. Unfortunately, of course, um, everybody is behind the eight ball on this because of um, the way things we've been doing for such a long time, um, and you know it's difficult to it's difficult to bring them back to health. So when you think about uh, chloride contamination in our fresh water, which comes from the salt uh prep applications that we do during the snow and ice season you know that's in there essentially forever at this point. it's not going to go away um, so we can't preempt it anymore. We have to prevent any further contamination in far as as much as we can. Um, so it there are things though that we can do going forward to to lessen our impact and so, In fact, I was just having a conversation about this yesterday uh, for a new construction for homes instead of using traditional cement and asphalt uh, for driveways and whatnot. How about we consider using pervious um, surfaces for those so that water can infiltrate back underground where it's supposed to go. So most of the time we're playing catch up and we're trying to fix things and we're trying to treat things that are broken. Uh, But every once in a while, we can preempt uh, further insult and injury to our patient. Uh, I've never heard that analogy before, but it's a very good one, I have to say. Sad, but good.
0: Right. And I suppose to take the metaphor a little further, that sometimes we do harm to ourselves physically, and we honestly don't realize that we are. I mean, we Mm -hmm. don't understand that uh, consuming this or, or lifting that or whatever is going to do us harm. And, and then there are consequences with which we have to deal. And likewise with the planet Earth, there are things that we have done for decades, maybe centuries, not understanding. I mean, honestly, not understanding the, the consequences to the planet. Right. And now we're, we're forced to face those consequences.
1: Right.
0: For those of you just joining us, today is the monthly visit of Nan Calvert to The Morning Show. And with her as a special guest is <laughs> Joe Pfeiffer, who is with KCI Technologies which is undertaking a very special restoration project uh, uh, in the town of Mount Pleasant. Joe, before we get to that, I I wanna ask you about uh, one other term, and I think you mentioned it, I know that Nan mentioned it uh, as she was introducing you, and that is the term of green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Can you take us inside what that term means and particularly how it relates to the work that KCI Technologies does?
2: Sure. So, like I stated earlier, the, the environment provides functions for us to basically benefits human life, um, water quality, air we breathe, everything else. So, in itself, it, it is a an infrastructure. Um, and so, natural infrastructure is basically what the environment is providing us. As we we kind of move forward into the, the world of, of needing to grow as a population and the human, we, we have to basically manage that natural infrastructure in a manner that we can actually... I don't want to say capitalize but basically be able to make sure that it basically stays like It's no different than our roads. Roads are just basic infrastructure. Green infrastructure is is the other side of that, is that function. And so we need to try to figure out how to harvest that that availability of that green infrastructure and manage it the same way we would any other component of the infrastructure of uh, of our system. And when we we have to stop thinking and considering that they're two separate things altogether. We, they're all one and the same. And that's where we get into green infrastructure and how do we basically um, use the the availability of what nature can do for us as a as a component to development. Um, I've always defined conservation as the wise use of a resource. It's not the total. We can never touch it because we can't. We we live on this planet. We live on this world. We we have to. Conservation is the wise use of a resource and trying to figure out how we can basically live in, in synchronicity with it such that it benefits us as much as we benefit it is really the challenge moving forward and linking things together to the best of our ability is, is paramount in that success.
0: So let's talk more specifically about, uh, to this project, uh, in Mount Pleasant, uh, which, uh, inspired Nan to, uh, issue this invitation to you. Uh, first of all, give us kind of the, the background on uh, the need and uh, the means by which uh, KCI Technologies was brought in to try to address the need or problem mm-hmm. that we're talking about.
2: Well, the the Meacham Road Wetland Restoration Project basically is a uh, Wisconsin Wetland Conservation Trust in Luffy project. And so it is a... and and mitigative offset for other wetland impacts that are within the Southwest Lake Michigan drainage units. Um, and that particular program gathers components, gathers funding from different impactors and you know anything from little tiny ones to big ones and puts them together in a larger package such that you can have a more comprehensive approach to doing a ecological restoration. Small little restoration products, a half acre here, quarter acre there, they don't survive well and they're not very functional. There's just no uh, economy of mass within them. So, this project came from the came as a result of that program's needs. Um, you know, we, we there was a, a parcel that w- was identified, and we, we spent a lot of time looking for you know projects, you know, aerial photography, looking at Google Earth, different things like that, and identifying where there's drain tile, where historically there was wetlands that are now. Um, the, the, functions of them are gone for whatever reason they've been, they've been utilized for other, other reasons. Um, and so trying to identify those projects and then piece together the necessary, um, properties to basically make them a, a, a whole project. And then we submitted that particular project to, uh, the, the, the trust fund, uh, for basically implementation and it was approved. Uh, and then we basically went ahead and started doing the work on it. the The site itself, we it's about a 60 acre um, parcel that we're working in there, and it was historically a, a agriculture. Um, as back late as 1937, we we could identify that it was in agriculture. I can't tell you what happened before then, but at that point in time, it was in it was in agriculture. Um, a portion of it was actually in a sand and gravel mine um, to the on the on the south side of it. So it had it had been modified pretty significantly over the years. The, just the channel, the, the drainage of the site had been modified. There was an extensive amount of tile drain network in there, which enabled the, the water to get out of the, the site. Historically, and, and I, I call the, one of the things I do in the process of doing these things is, is I, I call forensic ecology. So I try to figure out what it was in the past, understand how it was damaged, and then that tells me how the, the prescription I need to apply to it to kind of fix the problem and try to restore those functions back to it. So in the, you know, looking at it and I trying to identify, I could tell that there had been a lot of tile drain network put into the system, the aid in drainage. the soils are already a, considered hydric, they're, they're wet soils by nature. Um, and it had been basically just extensively farmed over the, over the years. The streams in, on the site had been ditched out to promote drainage to it. So everything we've done to that site in terms of restoring it is associated with removing a lot of those those drainage features and the things that basically cause that and then replanning and restoring it. Part of that process is trying to understand where you have and where is it coming from and what it wants to be, because the you get down into the nitty-gritty of the, of the wetland, and they all vary a little bit based on how much water they have available to them. So there's an extensive effort to try to figure out what those communities were and how much water they supported so that we can basically restore an appropriate wetland community to the site.
0: So one of the first things you determined, it sounds like, is that this was once Wetlands. This yep. was a wetland site. And so it's not that you're trying to create wetlands out of thin air, uh, or not quite. Uh, you are trying to recreate a wetland that used to be there. Correct. Now, is there something about this track of land that makes it, in a sense, receptive to being a wetland again? I mean, what about this tract of land its topography or whatever uh would lend itself to, to this kind of of restoration work
2: well the the fact that there was an extensive drain town network in there was the primary cause of of the um loss of it as being a wetland sometimes you run in the sites where the primary loss of them being in there is uh They've put fill on top of it. They buried it in six foot of fill or they there's a major creek that basically they put in the concrete and lined it and it's off the site. And we start having stuff like that. It becomes very difficult to restore that just from it's a logic, logical problem more than a than than anything. Anything can be done, but it's off the property. You have to deal with drainage issues. You have to deal with floodplain issues. You have lots and lots of complexities to go into what you can and can't do. On this particular property, it was it's it was it came together well because the the drainage features were all into the center of the property, so that enabled us to basically really come in there and pull out all that tile drain, do some work in the in the stream channel to basically um, hold the water back and basically provide some some retention um, without affecting anybody around it. So that made it very viable for for doing that. You you have to be very careful at times in terms of making sure that you're not offending the neighbors with, with potential water problems or some of those other things. So this site fell very well into that category of being able to work it out.
0: What when are we talking about in terms of the onset of this project? I mean, for instance, when were you doing that assessment phase where you were actually carefully examining this property and sort of determining its, its viability? When, when did that occur?
2: Um, we started with some viability assessments back in late 2019, and then we did the majority of the, uh, the detailed analysis and field work out there in early 2020, and then from that we developed a, a, a CSP, a, a, a conservation site plan, um, to basically identify the exact what we're going to do on the site and how we're going to do it, and then we submit it for permits, and then we were in construction in the fall of um, 2020.
0: So, uh, was the construction phase uh, completed, or was it interrupted by COVID?
2: <clears throat> um, it really wasn't interrupted, and it's a little bit easier when you've got people working outside, and it, it doesn't necessarily always require mass volumes of people. The best restoration sites are the ones where you can basically surgically go in and deal with the problems without basically complete frontal assault on it. You know, we're we're trying to do plastic surgery more than we're trying to do amputations. Um, in the process of, of re- returning these the sites back to consideration. So we can work with a smaller crew, plenty of room. You know, COVID really didn't have a huge impact on, on slowing that down. It slowed down some of the permitting processes because the people that we need to get approvals and permissions from, you know, aren't always fully in the office or they're separated in a couple different areas and that, you know, in we had to learn our communication skills a little bit better, I think over the past nine months for everything we do. Um, So that certainly was a bit of a challenge, but it it went through very, very smoothly.
0: Right. So construction then is complete.
2: We're 95% complete overall. I've got a little bit of cleanup work to do here somewhere to the end of the the month. And then starting the first week of April, we go start uh, planting the woody vegetation so we've got 44,000 trees we're going to be planting out there on that on that 60 acres. We did the seeding over the winter because we, we like the seed to stratify um, with the uh, with the cold weather. It makes the native seed grow better. Uh, stratification is the process of freeze thaw that basically is a naturally occurring and it abates the outer surface of the seed that helps it grow better.
0: Hmm. Before we get to the matter of planting, which I know Nan is excited about and probably wants to ask you about, um, can you just help us understand what what that crew was doing through most of the construction phase i mean exactly what would it have looked like and just sort of what sort of sweat and toil are we talking about
2: well i i can tell you that from first hand experience because i was one of the ones doing it so ah okay <laughs>
0: So you weren't just drawing pretty pictures, telling somebody else
2: wow. what to do. No, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hands-on person. It's like, uh, it's again, back to the doctor stuff. You want the you want the doctor out there. Um, so a lot a lot of it was drain tile. You know, there was an extensive, probably, uh, I think I calculated roughly twenty thousand linear foot of drain tile that was buried in that in the soils out there. So drain tile is basically a vitrified clay pipe, almost like like a stove pipe, that's put in the ground anywhere from, you know, a foot and a half to two and a half feet underground on a slope that basically takes any groundwater that's coming up or any surface water that's ponding up and allows it to drain down and out to, a, and drain out of the site. So we basically had to go out there and we we located each one of those, those drain tiles and broke them, um, took, took chunks of them out. We didn't basically try to completely excavate the entire site because, Clay pipe is pretty inert anyway, so we basically go in and about every 200 feet and break a 10 foot section out with a track hoe. So you dig that up, break that pipe, and then recompact the dirt back into the into the hole and put the topsail back in place. But it was a you know a, it was a lattice network, a Christmas tree network of drain tile pipe out there, and it, it took us the better part of a month just you know finding it and then and then breaking it. And it can be a little bit challenging because there's no marks away where it is. It's all based off of, of you know, looking at aerial photographs and, and identifying coordinates and then measuring in between. And so it's a, it's a process.
0: Wow. I'm curious, for somebody who would drive down Meacham Road, and I, I'm sure at a very casual glance, I'm guessing that one could, would scarcely know that anything has happened there. Uh, I mean, it's not like there's a deep valley where once it was flat or a tall mountain, a little hill where once it was flat. I mean, I'm I'm guessing at a glance, it does not look remarkably different. If you looked closely, would somebody who knew what it looked like before be able to tell that there is a big difference? Or will that difference, visual difference, visible difference, uh, be more apparent now in this next phase?
2: The, the visible difference probably really won't, pop that people will notice it until probably uh, next fall or maybe even the following spring. And the reason being is, you know, it's been in agriculture. So right now we've gone in and and reapplied, you know, kind of roughened the surface up, developed microtopography as we call it um, on a majority of the site, which wouldn't look a whole lot different than the normal agricultural activities that are going on there. We're going to plant the trees. The trees are, you know, 18 inch tall, bare root stock. So they're not very uh, obvious just yet. Um, and then you know, so it'll be a, a couple years, but in, in a couple years, they'll actually be able to start noticing that you know, there it's a, it has a different look to it. Wetlands in a field just look different than just your normal field, they have different color schemes. They basically have the, how the patterns of the drainage lay out. Um, and then the trees will start basically popping up. It'll be a couple years before we actually see the trees, you know, getting up into that four foot range where you can actually see the, the, the vegetation. Um, that basically is starting to kind of re reestablish itself back in the field. Wow. Uh,
0: as Nan Calvert has talked about numerous times on the, on the morning show, uh, the matter of what is planted is of crucial importance in terms of this kind of restoration work. So have all of those determinations already been made about exactly what you will plant and where on this property?
2: Yeah, very much so. It's a combination of we look for reference wetlands. So we look for what we want it to be. And again, trying to find something that is natural, that likely. So we were, we were fortunate to have the, the state natural area directly across the street. So we were able to go over there and actually look at the existing wetland systems that are there and actually do an inventory of the species that are, are growing there and pretty much undisturbed for you a know, hundred years or more. Um, And so we're able to use that as a kind of our guidance template in terms of selection of of plant material. Um, We do look at what's available because a lot of times not everything is always available through nursery stock. So it's kind of a combination of identifying what was historically there, what's commonly found in the wetland community types that we've identified are going to be um, reestablishing themselves on site um, and what the the reference wetlands tell us. And from that, we create our, our planning list Um, to basically reestablish the woody species. What does
0: that sound like to you, Nan Calvert, in terms of a plan of action with this crucial matter of planting?
1: Uh, It sounds perfect. (laughs) It sounds like paradise, actually. You know, it's um, aside from the aesthetics that will happen in a few years when things really begin to mature and come into their own, um, there are myriad benefits of doing a restoration like this. And uh, hopefully uh, Joe can wax uh, eloquent and philosophically about why it's important to restore as many wetlands as we possibly can.
0: Yeah, tell us what the function is of wetlands and and why it is a loss when we lose one and what the gain is when we gain one.
2: Well, wetlands have the tremendous amount of functions. Um, some of the ones that are probably most you know uh, that are there that may be not apparent to us are our water quality functions water quality and wildlife habitat um, they have a, the unique ability to basically filter water to ex, to trap phosphorus and nitrogen um, and export it and to basically really clean up the, the, the water to a, to a great extent um, they, they are they are basically the, the wastewater processing plants of, of, of nature. Uh, some of the more visible ones that that I think that people reckon should recognize is is flooding you know the wetlands are like sponges they absorb water and then release it slowly downstream so when you get a two inch rainfall and in, you know in four hours the, the water has some place to basically settle out slow down and then slowly release as opposed to just being dumped right into a stream channel and just ripping down because most of our our hard infrastructure is in, you know, can't handle it all the time. And that's where we get people flooding in their backyards or people, roads get flooded, or we have all kinds of, of, of problems going on. Um, so, so wetlands provide a host of, of functions in that matter. Um, wildlife habitats is, is, is another one, you know, and whether or not it's deer, whether it's birds, whether it's migratory uh, animals, you know, there are, there are many animals that are very specialized uh, to wetland habitats. Uh, and systems that require that um, the habitat. And we've, and we've lost so much of it over the years that when you actually can do a restoration like this one, these 60 acres, the, the wildlife habitat it will, will be incredible. Um, one, of the, one of my biggest rewards is in, in working on these projects and having, you know, having the, the fortunate uh, ability to basically go back and look at projects that I've you know, done 20 years ago is how much that, you know, build it and they will come. Um, It's absolutely amazing to see how quickly wildlife responds to utilizing when you give them the niche that they, that they need. it, it, it will be truly amazing to the rate. Um, The birders in the area will basically figure out before anybody how, how effective this is because they will, they will flock to that area. Mm.
1: You know, unfortunately um, wetlands are one of the least understood or most misunderstood habitats when you talk about wetlands, people think, oh, it's a swamp, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's something that's just going to breed mosquitoes. But in point of fact, if you have a healthy wetland ecosystem, uh, you're not overrun with mosquitoes. Yes, you will have some, but you also have all kinds of animals that eat the larvae and also the adult form of the mosquito. Uh, and um, it, unfortunately, I think a lot of our wetlands have been drained and destroyed uh, because of a lack of understanding of how incredibly important, how essential they are to the health of our planet and to the health of um, humans as well.
0: So, so Joe Pfeiffer, this the wetland that will be restored on, on on Meacham Road. How far an impact does it have? I mean, beyond helping that particular tract of land, does having that wetland is that of significant benefit to for instance surrounding land I mean does that affect more of the watershed than just the, those 60 acres themselves
2: oh absolutely it, it, it basically it has a, has a value to everything from the the river all the way down to the to the lake um, every 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 piece of it. Uh, you know, wetlands are you know the the string of pearls, which basically has a tenant that that form along river systems and stream systems that basically act as the 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 buffer and the and the cadence of 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 the health of the system. So it, it won't it'll be far more impactful across the entire region than simply uh, just the, on that that site alone. Very good. And then
0: just a quick word about what is planted there. And the difference that makes in terms of, of careful choices made in terms of the viability of this new wetland.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, again, everything you know. Anytime you're looking at the, the, the analysis or the design in terms of how we come up with this stuff, we're, we have we have target functions we're shooting for. Water quality is one of those target functions here. Flood retention. Um, is one of those targets here. The wildlife habitat is, is one of those targets here. So by by picking species that basically um, A, are natural in the community and basically have a lot of diversity within the system so that we don't have, we don't want monotypical, we don't want all the same species in there. We want a very great wide diversity of that of that index across the, the entire site. And anytime you have that that variability, you maximize functional value, interface between species, interface between habitat types and niche habitats um, that are on the site. Uh, I think it's important to note that the the site isn't monotypical in terms of of, of structure. So don't think of a a wetland as just a giant flat field that basically you put a bunch of, of plants in there's what we call microtopography within there. There's small elevations and changes. And There's one spot that's going to be got six inches of water on it all the time. And there's another spot that won't have it on there at all. And those, those, those interfaces, that ecotone edge between the different nuances within the system is really what maximizes the functional value of the system for all aspects. So there's a, there's a very micro niche approach at times in terms of, of, of doing that. And, That's one of the reasons why, you know, KCI, we we do both the the analysis design and the construction on these these systems. And I've always professed that it's important to have the guys that are doing the design work and the analysis work being the guys that are basically doing the construction work because it's very difficult to basically take a, a project like this and say, just bid it out to a contractor. Not that they can't do the work, but they're building what's on the plans exactly. There's a lot of art that goes to, Um, within the the, the allowances of the plan to basically um, build these to be very effective and to basically make them work very well. Um, And that just takes, that takes time and experience. And it's, and it's uh, just kind of adjusting a little bit as you go. So I've I've been a, a very strong proponent of being able to both design and build these things to maximize effect and efficiency. Wow.
1: Joe, for those of us who are native plant nerds like myself, can you speak specifically about species that you've chosen in there trees and herbaceous species?
2: And I wouldn't want to tell you wrong I could get my list out here, but we, we have uh, we have plenty of we have maples in there we've got the we got the, we have some hackberry uh, and I don't want to come trying to confuse it because I've got multiple products going on and they all have different okay We have a large shrub shrub wetland components. we have a lot of willows in there, some red twig dogwoods, some, I think some red osiers in there. Um, we've, we've spent quite a bit of time eradicating invasive species with her on that site. Anytime you have a site, especially one that's been degraded or damaged, you have tremendous amount of invasive species. So we've had a, uh, we have a very big buckthorn problem out there and we've spent the winter basically, um, you know, killing that basically putting, you know, some herbicide into the, the, to the cambium to basically try to kill that off. We had a lot of, um, honeysuckle out there. So we've basically been working on that. We also have some bunch of reed canary grass Uh, all of them are invasive species that we need to eradicate as part of the the process so it's as much as what we're killing as what we're planting (laughs) right
1: Mm.
0: well you've been the ideal guest joe pfeiffer because you not only have been the, the the visionary with the design but also out there in the field working up a sweat and doing this hard and important work and that's part of what's been just great about this is to really hear the whole story Mm-hmm. And uh, and those of us especially who live in the area will be so excited to see kind of the final fruition of all of the efforts that have gone on with this uh, Meacham, Meacham Road uh, restoration project. Joe Pfeiffer is a vice president with KCI Technologies and uh, one of the chief architects of this particular restoration project. It's been wonderful to meet you and wonderful to hear about the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. And Nan Calvert, you hit the jackpot with this guest. Thank you so much for uh, planning today's program, and we look forward to seeing you in April.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Joe. You're
2: welcome. night.